when everyone's taking proper care of the earth. Dream on, sisters. And each new baby is a wanted bird. Dream on, girls. When no one's forced to live powerless, and every girl and boy has a chance at success, we've got to cling to God to get out of this mess. So dream on. When the mines of war aren't the crops in our soil, dream on, sisters. And politicians stop trading blood for oil, dream on. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Dream On Sisters by Diana Tyler. This singer-songwriter from Lorraine County is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about her and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Tonight, we're going to the Cincinnati west side suburb of Green Township on September 27, 1966. It's an area also known as Bridgetown. There was a very nice middle-class neighborhood along Greenway Avenue, made up mostly of three-bedroom split-level homes, typical of 1950s American suburbia, and porches that allowed neighbors to get to know each other and chat while watching their children play in the yard. And there lived the Bricka family, a young couple with movie star good looks and their adorable four-year-old daughter. The husband and father was Gerald. They called him Jerry. He was 28 years old, a native of San Francisco, the son of a prominent Italian family who had settled in the Golden Gate City in the days of the gold rush back in 1850. There were four medical doctors in his immediate family, but his path lay elsewhere. Jerry went to postgraduate school at Stanford University, became a chemical engineer, and had spent his entire professional career working for the Monsanto Company. His wife, Linda, was 24 and a native of Barrington Hills, Illinois, outside Chicago. She originally embarked on a career as an airline stewardess, in an era when stewardesses were almost like rock stars of the sky, At the age of 19, she attended the United Airlines Stewardess School in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and then got her first assignment, which based her in Seattle. That's where she met Jerry, and her career was over. Just six months after they started dating, Linda was pregnant. They quickly got married, and Linda devoted herself to being a wife and mother. In 1963, Jerry, Linda, and baby Debbie moved from Seattle to Cincinnati, where Jerry was put in charge of operations at Monsanto's plastics plant in the Hamilton County village of Addiston. And by 1966, they were well settled in and surrounded by other successful professionals. 
They were younger than most of their neighbors, who referred to them as the kids. Linda was the beautiful woman with the stunning eyes and a pleasant and confident manner, though some might add aloof. Jerry was the guy who loved to talk about sports and had a shelf full of swimming trophies he'd won at high school and his days at Stanford. The Brickas and their neighbors attended each other's Halloween and Christmas parties, summer block parties, and backyard picnics. And so the neighbors knew them well enough to know something was wrong. The evening of September the 27th, their next-door neighbor, Richard Meyer, a general electric engineer, decided he'd better act. He had seen the Brickas two days earlier, a Sunday. Jerry had spent the early morning at his plant. It wasn't unusual for him to work weekends. Then came home and took his family to 10 o'clock Mass at Our Lady of Lords Church on Glenway Avenue. Afterward, he returned to work where he stayed until 8 p.m. On his way home, he stopped at the United Dairy Farmers on the corner of Bridgetown and Aurora Avenue to pick up milk before traveling the last mile home. It was after dark when Jerry lugged the trash cans to the curb. He saw his neighbor, Joan Jansen, who lived across the street and was walking her dog. They traded comments about the recent rainy weather. Then Jerry went back inside. On Monday and then Tuesday, the neighbors noted that the trash cans hadn't been taken in. Linda always hauled them back as soon as the garbage truck had passed. The newspapers went untouched in the yard. One neighbor picked them up and tossed them onto the porch for the couple, but they just lay there. And the cars. Jerry's in the driveway, Linda's in the garage. They hadn't been moved in two days. Two days that Jerry seemingly had not gone into work. Another telltale. Rabbits kept in the backyard by the family had been left out in the rain, something completely out of character for Linda, who was almost fanatical about her love for animals. Tuesday night, about 10.40 p.m., the Myers tried calling the Brickas on the phone. When they didn't answer, Richard Meyer went to their house and rang the doorbell. The lights were on inside, and the two family dogs were barking, but nobody came to the door. After a quick consult with another neighbor, Richard Jansen, Meyer decided to enter the house. The front door was unlocked, but Meyer didn't need to go inside. He later told a reporter, I knew what it was as soon as I opened the door. Nothing smells like that. I remember it from World War II. He was, of course, talking about the smell of decomposition. Meyer backed out of the house, walked home in tears, and called police. Police arrived and entered the house. They found the family on the upper floor of the tri-level home. Jerry and Linda were in their bedroom, Jerry on the floor next to the bed, Linda on top of him. Each had numerous stab wounds, all of Jerry's in the back, all of Linda's in the front. It appeared both had been bound at some point, possibly with tape, but it had been removed from the bodies and presumably taken from the scene by the killer, or killers. 
Jerry had a sock stuffed into his mouth and held in place with medical tape. He was dressed in his day clothes. Linda was in a nightgown. The coroner went back and forth on whether she had been sexually assaulted, but in the end concluded Linda had not been raped, though there was seminal fluid, so she would have had sex a day or two before she died. Four-year-old Deborah was found on the floor of her bedroom, arms and legs splayed, indicating she had been pulled out from under her bed. She had four stab wounds to the back, each wound going completely through her body. The family had those two pet dogs, Thumper and Dusty. Police found them shut up in the basement family room, though they were never sure if the family had placed them there as a matter of routine or if the killer had done that. Police asked the two neighbors, Richard Meyer and Richard Jansen, to identify the bodies, and they did. Afterward, Meyer was heard saying, My God, what they did to that baby. The house was ransacked, with numerous drawers and cabinets opened and upended. Police couldn't tell what was taken, but it did appear a knife may have been missing. It was a five to seven inch blade with an elaborately carved wooden handle, an oriental design. It was missing from a matched set that had been displayed on a buffet in the dining room. It was impossible to know, but it may have been the murder weapon. Investigators used cameras to search the sewers in the neighborhood in case the killer ditched it there and contacted the trash company in case it had been tossed into the cans that were emptied Monday morning. But they learned trying to find a knife in a landfill would be worse than the proverbial needle in a haystack. Detectives quickly theorized that the Brickas knew whoever had attacked them. There were no defensive wounds, indicating they might not have initially been surprised by their unexpected guest, There was no forced entry, and the two dogs, known to be aggressive barkers, hadn't raised a ruckus, at least not one the neighbors had heard. Later, investigators would come to believe the dogs were initially sedated. Giving clues at the crime scene, investigators pieced together one possible timeline of what happened. It would have had to be after 10 p.m. Sunday night when Linda talked to her father by phone. He'd called to catch up before he and Linda's mother headed on vacation. The Brickas were in the family room at the ground level of the home where Jerry had taken off his shoes. Linda had a load of clothes in the dryer and was in the process of folding another batch. The TV was in this room and it was a good bet they had joined 60 million other television viewers that night who had tuned into the TV debut of The Bridge on the River Kwai, a much-anticipated event. Then, Jerry probably put Debbie to bed. That was their routine, and it appeared he had taken her upstairs to tuck her in. She was dressed in her flannel nightgown. Maybe that's when someone entered through an unlocked door and confronted Linda. If there was a disturbance, nobody outside the home heard it. Even though the homes in this neighborhood were perhaps only 20 feet apart, it was raining and cool outside. 
and windows were closed. At some point, Linda was herded upstairs to the master bedroom. Here's where the notion of there being a second killer comes in, because at some point, Jerry was either confronted in his daughter's bedroom and taken to the master bedroom, or he heard a commotion and went to the bedroom himself. Either way, he was at some point bound and gagged and stabbed in the back at least ten times. He fell to the floor between the bed and the wall. Linda was on the bed, laying on her back, when she was stabbed six times in the front, then at some point fell from the bed onto Jerry. The fact that the killer or killers then went to Debbie's room, dragged her from her hiding place, and stabbed her made investigators wonder if that unconscionable act meant the little girl knew them. It seemed like her death was less about rage and more about fear of being identified. While Monsanto, Jerry's employer, did not send anyone over to check on Jerry, they had begun to wonder about him. They called his house Monday morning when he failed to meet another co-worker for a business trip to West Virginia. I'm not sure what efforts they took on Tuesday, but it didn't involve an in-person visit. And so the Brickas lay dead and undiscovered for 48 hours. Police would eventually conduct more than 400 interviews, but it didn't take long for them to learn that the Brickas did not have an enviable relationship. Theirs was a marriage on the rocks. To outsiders, it wouldn't have seemed so. Jerry and Linda traveled to San Francisco a couple of weeks earlier for the wedding of Jerry's sister, where people saw them laughing and dancing together. But Jerry and Linda had a trial separation just a few months earlier. Friends described Jerry as a workaholic, gone long hours. And apparently, in his absence, Linda had started an affair Jerry knew it, or at the very least, suspected it. Just a few days before they were killed, Jerry came home early from a stag party to find Linda had gone out and left Debbie with neighbors who babysat for them. Around 10.30 that night, Linda came home, clearly intoxicated. Now the coroner knew Linda had recently had intercourse but others knew Jerry had been spending his night sleeping on the couch. Also, Jerry had opened up about his marital problems to his boss at work. Police came to believe that the other partner in this love triangle was a local veterinarian, a very married Dr. Fred Leininger. Leininger worked at the Glenway Animal Hospital. Linda spent a lot of time there and for months had been asking for a part-time job. Leininger finally hired her as a receptionist. She put in her first three shifts before the weekend of her murder. But there was more to it than that, people insisted. Witnesses had seen Linda and Leininger out and about town, sometimes in secluded places where it made no sense for them to be together. Police brought Leininger in for questioning, but after 45 minutes, he lawyered up and never talked to investigators again. 
It just so happened that the Brickham murders came just a few months after that landmark Supreme Court ruling that police were required to advise suspects of their right to remain silent. It's called the Miranda Warning, and Leininger was taking full advantage of it. Investigators would keep the veterinarian under surveillance for years, especially after they uncovered shady characters associated with the animal clinic and tales of missing narcotics. But they couldn't find any evidence that the doctor was involved. And those who knew him said he had never shown the kind of fury and violence it would take to kill a four-year-old girl. Another vein of thought involved Linda's days as a stewardess. Two women Linda had worked with and lived with were attacked in Seattle that June. One was killed, the other beaten so badly she lost any memory of the attack. Linda mentioned to people she was afraid and said something about having helped to break up a drug ring during her time working for the airline. She even told a neighbor where Debbie went to play with another little girl, to start calling her when Debbie was ready to come home so she could walk to the house and escort her back. And then there was the story of a Monsanto co-worker that didn't get along with Jerry. He showed up at the crime scene, as did some other co-workers who gathered on the sidewalk, but then this guy acted like he didn't know Jerry lived there even though they knew he had been to Jerry's house. It also sent up all sorts of red flags when the guy started outlining his alibi right there, an alibi nobody had asked for. Many people thought the murder sounded like a professional job. It was hard to imagine that some spurned lover or unfriendly co-worker or drug case from bygone years across the country would have yielded such a horrifying act. Then again, didn't multiple stab wounds suggest some level of personal rage? History is the greatest adventure story, but does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I need to expand our topic a bit here because it would not be complete to tell the story without putting it into the context of what else was going on in Cincinnati that year. Because the Brickas were killed in the midst of the hunt for the Cincinnati Strangler, a killer who stalked older women in the heart of the city. Nobody thought the Cincinnati Strangler had killed the Brickas, but now all of a sudden, the city wasn't just worried about single, vulnerable women in poor neighborhoods. An entire family had been wiped out in the seemingly safe suburbs. It just put everyone over the top. The Cincinnati Strangler targeted women between the ages of 31 and 81, living in low-income housing complexes. 
His first victim was 56-year-old Emma Jane Harrington, who was attacked and killed on December the 2nd, 1965. Then, on April the 4th, 1966, 58-year-old Lois Dant was found strangled, raped, and beaten in her apartment. Lois had been talking to a friend on the phone and hung up to answer a knock on the door, a knock from the killer. He struck again on June the 10th. He found 56-year-old Matilda Messer walking her dog in a city park. He tied her dog to a tree, then beat, raped, and strangled her. The fourth victim was 31-year-old Barbara Bowman, who was attacked on August the 14th. She was at a bar and called a taxi to drive her home. The taxi that showed up had been stolen from the Yellow Cab Company. The driver was the strangler. Less than two blocks from her apartment, he attacked her and stabbed her in the throat seven times. After the Brickas were added to the city's growing death toll, gun sales went to record high levels, self-defense classes were filled, dog pounds had run out of large dogs that all been adopted, hardware stores couldn't keep door locks, deadbolts, and door chain guards in stock. That Halloween, trick-or-treat was moved from the evening to the afternoon, so it would begin and end in daylight. City Council was even holding meetings looking for extra money to throw at police to increase patrols and aid the investigations. Meanwhile, a reward fund for the Brickas grew to more than $15,000 with the hope that the money would loosen someone's tongue. It never did. Years passed, but the city never forgot. Among older residents, the story of the Brickas is almost folklore, and modern-day detectives have revisited it from time to time, hoping to finally put it to rest. Not long ago, they retested all of the evidence that they had pulled from the crime scene more than 50 years ago. And the Ohio Attorney General, who started a new cold case unit in 2020, joined the effort to solve this one. Evidence had included finger, palm prints, and lots of blood. They had even isolated some DNA. There were Marlboro cigarette butts found in the bedroom that didn't belong to Linda or Jerry. There was hair in Linda's hand, and they had that seminal fluid from her recent sexual activity. The DNA yielded a profile, but it received no hits in CODIS, that database of offenders who have their DNA on file. And, for now at least, there has been no success yielding connections to any genealogical database. You know, the way some other cold case killers are being found by following the family tree of the unidentified DNA profile. I do have some epilogues to this story, however. A few years ago, a Cincinnati author and self-described armchair detective named J.T. Townsend wrote a book about the tragedy. It's called Summer's Almost Gone. You can learn about his favorite suspect, and the lineup of what I refer to earlier as shady characters associated with the animal clinic, at his website, jttownsend.com. 
Townsend revealed that the man suspected of having an affair with Linda, Dr. Fred Leininger, and Leininger's wife, Lynn, both committed suicide in 2004. They had moved to Sarasota, Florida after Leininger retired in 1995, but had driven themselves to a Cincinnati hotel where they left instructions for their kids, gifts for their grandchildren, even set aside clothing to use for their burial. They both took overdoses of morphine. Fred Leininger died right away. Lynn went into a coma and lingered for months. I also mentioned those two airline stewardesses Linda had lived with in Seattle. The one, Lonnie Trumbull, died. The other, Lisa Wick, spent several weeks in a coma and never regained her memory of the attack. Later, many came to believe that that was the work of serial killer Ted Bundy, who at the time was a 19-year-old college student who worked at a store near where the women lived. And let me finish the story of the Cincinnati Strangler. He struck again a couple weeks after the Brickas were killed on October the 11th. His fifth victim was 51-year-old Alice Hochhausen. Nine days later, on October 20th, 61-year-old Rose Winsel was found beaten and strangled in her apartment. On December the 9th, the criminal attacked 81-year-old Lula Carrick in the elevator of her downtown apartment building. She was strangled with one of her own stockings. That very day, police arrested a man for the murder of victim number four, Barbara Bowman. His name was Postil Lasky Jr. He was 29 years old. With only circumstantial evidence and testimony, the prosecutor was able to make a convincing case against him, and Lasky was convicted of Bowman's death and sentenced to the electric chair. The Supreme Court later commuted his sentence to life in prison, and that's where he was 40 years later when he died. Lasky was not convicted of killing any of the other women in the Cincinnati Strangler case. The police said they were confident he was responsible for all of them, and notably, the attack stopped after his arrest. That's it for tonight, listeners, for photos, news, clippings, and more. On this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. It's not easy to pin down the music of Lorraine County's Diana Tyler. She's a church secretary in Eaton Township, by day, who scribes a lot of original Christian rock music for worship. But next to that is a catalog of some very bawdy tunes, like her song Fireman and its hilarious innuendos about hoses. Seriously, check out her lineup at dianatyler.com and you'll think you're looking at two completely different artists. Diana has been in love with music since elementary school, taking after her mom, who had an operatic soprano voice, and her dad, a collector of big band music. She grew up in the church choir, joined a drum and bugle corps, and later took up the guitar, which clearly she can play naughty or nice. I listened to half a dozen songs, and she is equally great at both genres. Tonight, we're featuring Dream On Sisters, 
a more inspirational piece. Don't worry, we'll get Tyler back on in a few weeks and feature one of those irreverent songs. Here's Dream On Sisters by Diana Tyler. Enjoy, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men, and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy, and I'm Beth, and together we host Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.